0: We continue to look at God's Word, the best sermon ever, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be in verses 31 and 32 today of Matthew chapter 5, and today we look at the third antithesis that Jesus teaches. You remember how we started. It says, you have heard, blah, 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 but I say to you, blah, 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 okay? You see how that works? So. We're in the third one now. And it's a natural sequence for us if we look at the scripture, moving uh, to the subject of divorce, following the subjects of lust and adultery last week. And this third antithesis is a call to faithfulness and devotion to marriage. I want you to get that. I want you to get that. Boy, I'm telling you what, I set, I set some people off because I used the D word already this morning. But what we have to see is preeminence above, uh, that is this idea of faithfulness and devotion to marriage and in marriage. These two verses, I'm not dumb though, church. Your pastor's not dumb, okay? These these two verses are perhaps some of the least preached or taught in the best sermon ever. In fact, preachers often avoid them. Why? Why? Well, without scriptural guidance, divorce is a controversial and complex subject, and it touches people's emotions at the deepest level. Listen, some of the greatest pain a person will experience comes from divorce. And I want to stand before you today, and some of you know about my childhood, I have experienced that pain. I track with you. I relate with you. I empathize with you. We don't have time to give the testimony. Someday maybe I'll give you the whole testimony. It's pretty crazy how God saved a little boy in the midst of all that stuff. So I just want you to know, this is not an ivory tower sermon. This is not an academic thing where I'm up before you and not understanding anything about what these verses are about, okay? Is that all right? But we must, Go ahead and look at these verses you know why because we did 27 to 30 last week and guess what follows verse 30 31 and 32 now i'm going to be a new i'll be honest with you church i'm going to be that sound bad i i try to always be honest with you (laughs) i've been trying to learn to say i'm going to be frank that's what we all right we say honestly we should say frankly all right okay Uh, i'm going to be a new man about 12 30 today when I leave the parking lot and we're done with all this and if I don't get shot on the way out, it's going to be great, okay? Let me begin in this way, church. Once upon a time, that's always a good way to begin, right? Everybody's smiling. Once upon a time, there was a popular teacher who taught his followers that there was no possible argument for divorce except adultery. And at the same time, another popular teacher taught that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner by putting too much salt on the food, if she went into the public with her head uncovered, if she talked with men in the street, if she was disrespectful to her in-laws, if she was troublesome, if she was quarrelsome. Finally, there was another teacher once upon a time who taught that a man might divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he considered to be more attractive than she. Hmm. All of this was so confusing and chaotic. That's the story. But what we get from the story is this. Rabbinical teaching back then in Jesus' days, the teaching of rabbis, had become so messed up. That's a theological term, messed up, okay? So messed up. Who were these teachers? It's a true story. In order, first century rabbis, Shammai, Hillel, and one you may not have heard of, Akiba. And even today, as I think about their, their writings and what they taught, their interpretations, if you will, even today, there are extremes in biblical interpretation on this subject. So my prayer today is that we would allow Jesus' teaching to help us understand this difficult subject. All right, let's look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus speaking, best sermon ever. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. God, we pray today that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, open hearts. God, I pray today that our church and those listening online would know this pastor's heart, truly believing that he is an under-shepherd and desires to shepherd people. And God, I know there's pain today. I, I still experience it in my life today from many years ago. And I just pray that we would look to you and your words. And God, you would comfort us and bless us. And God, help us to remember that you are the God who forgives. You are the God who restores. And so we're so grateful for that today, God. And I thank you that you've gone before us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I teach today on an emotionally charged subject, I ask that each one of you would provide some grace to your pastor, okay? What do I mean by that? That you would listen closely and you would listen all the way to the end of our time today. So let's jump in and, and get going. Uh, my first point, I got two big points today. First point is that there's a longer passage that helps to interpret this shorter passage. Because Jesus gives us two verses here. Do you see that? That's it. But what we need to do, and I'd ask for you to turn in your scripture if you would like to, to Matthew chapter 19, because there's much, much more on this subject as Jesus is dealing with these scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. I call it Jesus' second recorded teaching on the subject. And I think this will help us spring back to 5:31, uh, and 32. Let me read it. Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him. You might want to mark that word. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now that I told you this story, you see why they were asking these things, right? Because that was taught. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And this is perhaps the understatement of the day, but Jesus' comments are very revealing. So I want you to look at three parts of his response. Maybe you've never looked at it, but I think sometimes we've got to get into the biblical story and as if we're right there and we're one of the hearers that's hearing this and we we need to participate and be there instead of just reading it through and looking at a couple words and things like that. So put yourself there like I have and there's there's some things that we see. I see three parts of Jesus response. I see contrast between Jesus and these leaders, these scribes and Pharisees. And number one is this preoccupation. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about preoccupation for a minute. As I read this passage and study this passage, uh, and maybe you would note as well, like I have, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. Do you see that? But Jesus was preoccupied with the institution of marriage. Do you see the difference? Do you see where the baggage you bring or where you come there? So Jesus gave them a counter question. He didn't answer their question. He questioned them back. And did you notice he went all the way back? He returned and went all the way back to Genesis. And he went back to Genesis chapter 1 when the biblical record shows us what? The creation of male and female. Let me say it again. Male and female. Let me say it one more time. Male and female. That's scripture. But not only that, then he also quotes, and perhaps your uh, Bible gives bold, sometimes mine does, gives bold face type when the New Testament is quoting directly from the Old Testament. So he goes to Genesis chapter 2, and then not only does he say male and female, but he, he talks and quotes from, about the institution of marriage. And Jesus gives us some principles here. So you think about this preoccupation for a minute. Well, the grounds on divorce, how can this happen? Or the idea of the institution of marriage. And Jesus shows us some principles just in his counter question to them, just in his uh, quoting from the Old Testament scripture. Number one is this, the exclusivity of marriage. I get that. Well, how do you get that, pastor? Male, female. Then he goes on and quotes and says what? Man. Wife. Now, I prefer husband and wife. In fact, when I would do marriages, I I know it's man and wife, but, you know, I like to say husband and wife just so the guy doesn't think he's getting off, you know, easy. Okay, right? But there it is. Male, female, husband, wife. It's very exclusive. That's it. There's no other options according to Scripture. Scripture. But not only does Jesus give us the the principle, if you will, of the exclusivity of marriage, he also gives us the principle of the permanence of marriage. Did you catch that? The guy is to what? Leave and go join. I think in the, the, the old King James, it's leave and cleave. It kind of rhymes, doesn't it? What does that mean? You leave and you join together and you become one. And there's a little warning in there, did you catch it? Don't be the person who's trying to separate it, okay? So Jesus drives these principles home by teaching. He summarizes it in this way, and he's quoting, he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. It is important for us to remember something, church, throughout this sermon and throughout life, let us remember that God instituted marriage and it is a divine institution. Let me just remind, someone told me years ago that really helped me, three things that God instituted. Two of them I love, one of them I don't. So let's get the one out of the way I don't love. He instituted government, I don't love that, okay? (laughs) Why, because a bunch of sinners do government and mess it up, right? But he also instituted the church, we kind of love that, don't we? And he instituted the family, which includes marriage, okay? So it's very important for us to remove our feelings from the equation and realize that marriage, marriage listen, I, I know you can go to the justice of the peace, but in God's eyes, marriage is a divine institution that God makes as a male and a female form, if you will, a new unit and become, according to Scripture, one flesh. And what I would say to this is what Jesus says right here trumps all civil opinions, trumps all cultural opinions. Well, let's look at another thing, not just a perspective of preoccupation, but secondly, command versus concession, command versus concession. What does that mean? As I read this scripture, I see that the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. Did you catch that? It's like it's a command for them, but Jesus calls it something else. He calls it a concession. And Jesus had previously taught on the subject. That's our passage today. We'll get back to it shortly. But in both instances, the Pharisees garble, if you will, the Mosaic provision. And they had disregarded what scripture really said. See, what they're trying to do, if you'll study, you'll have footnotes in your Bible. You'll see they're trying to figure out Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And let me just tell you something about Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. That's a whole paragraph strung together by a series of conditional clauses. You go and read it. There's a lot of ifs and thens in there. And we'll comment a little bit more about that in a minute. But Jesus is clear here, and he gives us another principle, okay? They're saying it's a command, and Jesus is saying, no, it's a concession. Jesus gives us a principle. He turns the light on to this subject when he says, it is about hardness of hearts. And what Jesus tells us here is it it was the hardness of hearts that led to the Mosaic allowance. And just like lust and adultery from last week, the same is true this week. It is a heart issue. Clearly, it is not a divine instruction. Well, pastor, how can you say that? Well, because he says, Jesus says, I quote, but it was not like that from the beginning. That's not how it was. So it's a divine, it's not a divine instruction, but rather it's a divine concession to human weakness. Again in verse eight, Jesus says, Moses permitted you to do this. So I want you to just catch that. Just the contrast, okay? And then there's one final one, and it's negligence versus seriousness. You see, as you heard from the story at the beginning of the sermon, many of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, many of them regarded divorce lightly But Jesus took it so seriously that he stated two things. One, there's only one exception. Secondly, other than the exception, he's calling the other stuff adultery. In both passages, the word used for the exception is the word porneia. And let me tell you something. There are some guys out there that will take that and they'll make it so narrow, but I don't see that. Most scholars today would say the meaning is not precise enough to say it only applies to premarital immorality. You'll find that. You'll, you'll find a guy that takes that word and he makes it really narrow and he makes it out to be, oh, this betrothal time. And if something happened in that year before they got married, think Mary and Joseph, Then then all of a sudden, that's what they're talking about. But the word is not that precise. And so what we have to see that it's a much more comprehensive word, and I think it is best rendered sexual immorality, which we know what that means. Any sex outside of marriage, all right? It's not hard to define, okay? And it's definitely not so broad. And some guys have gone the other way, liberals have gone, they've made that word so broad That they include anything making way for incompatibility that's not the word that's not the exception incompatibility so this leads us now back to chapter 5 verses 31 and 32 let me read it again for you one more time jesus said it was also said whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce but i tell you everyone who divorces his wife except in the case of sexual immorality that's that word for now causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the second point is, and this is just your pastor, the divorce dilemma. It's quite a dilemma in, in our time today. But here Jesus is quoting, if you look at verse 31, he's quoting from that Deuteronomy 24. Now I want you to remember something about that. It is Mosaic law, but it was not written as a command It was not written as a vehicle for okay it's right there let me go get the divorce no in fact i want you to think about that and look at that quote it was instead to help deter divorce rather than encourage it well how can this be because it required a did you catch it a written notice of divorce and you can study that and look at that that involves some steps and it is executed in public, now I'm just gonna stop for a minute. As a little kid, I watched my parents do something and they tried to do it in secret. The most devastating divorce that came into this kid's life happened when he was in junior high, right? You don't ever want anything traumatic to happen to you in junior high, right? It's hard enough just figuring all that stuff out, right? But they decided again to get divorced. And we lived in Alamogordo, which is the county seat of what, what county? Come on. Otero. Otero. Some of y'all know that, all right? I, I got you to smile. Good, a couple of you smiled, all right? But they knew what they were doing, and they didn't go to the courthouse, but they went and drove up to a place called Carrizozo. Have you ever heard of that? A different county. Why? Because back then, they put all the legal notices in the newspaper, right? And so they thought if I put that in there, then nobody will really know. And I'm, you know, I am 13 years old and I am not a biblical scholar, but I'm like, guys, this is not right. Can you not see you're trying to hide this? Now think how that went over. Do you think I got in a little trouble on that one? Yes, I did. But when I see this written notice of divorce, that memory floods back in and becomes really clear to me. What they had to do with this Mosaic law that allowed or permitted is they had to do it in public. Why would that be? Why could it not be done in secret? I'm going to tell you. The doc, that document granted the woman the right to remarry without civil or religious sanction. Well, why would we say that? Do you remember the rights that the woman had back in those days? Do you remember how many? None. Do you remember that one teaching of that one rabbi? Oh, if she's prettier, just get rid of that one and she's pretty. No. It gave her some protection from character assassination. You see, do- divorce could not be done privately. And I want you to see that. It's important to, to note that. So I believe Jesus is not saying sexual immorality must lead to divorce, only that it may. Do you see the nuance there? Do you see the difference there? There is no command that I can find in Scripture that says, if adultery occurs, you must divorce. If you find it, let me see it. Must. But I know lots of people who God has redeemed them, and they've worked through that in their marriage. Okay, I know that's not always the case for everyone. But I I just want you to to think about that for a minute. Remember what Jesus just taught on. Peacemaking, reconciling. I want to note something else. Because you can read. In fact, some of you, you might go read something and you'll send it to me. And that's okay. I've already read it, it. There's some scholars today that believe, are you ready for this? That there is no exception made for divorce. There's other scholars that believe there is one exception. There are some that believe there is two, and you can go find a liberal guy out there that will give you, he'll be like that one rabbi, he'll give you all this list of stuff. I want you to know that, though. I want you to know that, and I'm gonna give you what my beliefs are. Remember I asked for your your grace to your pastor? Here we go. Number one, here's what I believe from Scripture. There should be permanence in marriage, permanence. God instituted the family. We should not annul it. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And we just read in Matthew 19, 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So when I think about marriage, I immediately think about male, female coming together, one, and there's permanence in marriage. Secondly, here's another thing that your pastor believes. God has not come to tolerate divorce. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that God really tolerates this. In fact, you can look in the book of Malachi, and we find out that God hates divorce. We find out there's lots of divorce going on in Israel. There's lots of stuff going on. And then God, if you remember Malachi, what does God do? He no longer hears their prayers. It's pretty drastic. So that shows me something. Irreconcilable differences. That's not a reason for divorce, even though we see it all the time in our culture. I, I don't find that in Scripture. Number three, I've noted as I've read all the passages that only Matthew's account appears to list an exception. I know Paul commentates, commentates on something You know, the unbelieving spouses come together, one gets saved, and the other unbelieving spouse gets to where they can't handle this Christian in their household, and so that unbelieving spouse leaves. And what does Paul say? You've read it in 1 Corinthians. Let them go. I understand that. I'm talking about right here. Matthew's account appears to list an exception. And the exception is reluctant permission due to the hardness of hearts, so to be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, listen to me, if you're preoccupied, and I've met with some people that are just preoccupied, they've planned for years and years, and I'm going to tell you, Christian, that's not the way to do it, because to be preoccupied with the grounds for divorce is to be guilty of pharisaical thinking that Jesus has to condemn right here. But let me share number four, would you help some of you not exiting right now, <laughs> I know you're ready to. And it's this there are instances when a marriage separation is needed. I'm not stupid. There are institute, there are, there are times. Listen, when my stepfather was in a drunken rage, and I'm a five year old little boy, and he's beating my mother up in front of me, and I'm going in, and you know, I'm like, you know how you go in and be repelled? I'm going in to try to help her, and I'm getting thrown over here and going and listen, separate those two. painful, isn't it, when we think about things? And I would say there are instances when a marriage separation is needed, and I've counseled that before, especially with physical abuse. I mean, we're not done. But but separation is different from divorce. So, Lamar, what is one to do then if they've already been divorced? I'm going to give you three things to think about and then I'm gonna close in a powerful way that should speak to all of us. First of all, repent. First of all, repent. I've dealt with people that it's so emotionally charged with divorce that they will bow up and wanna come at me if I say anything about it. And they're still stuck in the idea of I was right, they were wrong or whatever. No, what, what do we need to do whenever their sin comes into our life? We need to repent, right? So if you've been divorced, just repent of the sin just as you would of other sins. And I have heard so many testimonies of people that have done that. Secondly, work. Work through the consequences of sin. We saw last week a principle Uh, as we looked at lust and adultery, that for whatever reason, a sin is a sin. It takes one sin, no matter what it is, to what? Send you to hell without Jesus saving you. And there's only one unpardonable sin, and it's not all these things that we rank, including divorce. So what I want you to know is do the work to work through the consequences of sin. This is where my folks failed us kids so bad. Nine kids put together. Are you ready for that? Two of us have had a permanent relationship out of nine. Well, what's part of the problem? I know adults make their own decisions, but they, they never did the work through the consequences of their sin. Own up to that fact. Work through it. Say, I'm sorry. Do whatever needs to be done, especially with children, okay? So repent, work through it. And, and let me say this. I've heard some guys Say some crazy stuff out there. If you've suffered a divorce and you've remarried another person that is of the opposite sex, do not terminate your marriage you're in. Listen, here's a principle. God never directs us to sin so we can go fix a previous sin. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? God doesn't ask, commit another sin so you can fix that one. No, that's not how he works. Listen. Listen. Here's the third word, serve. I want you to listen close. If you are divorced and remarried, I want you to listen close to this. Serve the Lord with the spouse that you have and determine in your heart to become a spiritual rebuilder who encourages other struggling couples to work out the problems in their marriages instead of getting a divorce. Serve. Do your best to say, let me share with you that path. Let me help you not go on that path. I I don't know how many times in counseling situations because of my childhood I've been able to help someone else. Because I I don't think you really want to go there. Let me tell you how that looks and how that works. So repent, work through the consequences of sin, and serve. And and, and here's, I I want to give you the good news. God meets us right where we are. No matter what you're thinking right now, no matter what your marital experience is right now, some of you are going, I'm single. Can you finish this sermon already? I'm, you know, I'm ready to get out here. Listen, no matter where you are, God is meeting you right where you are. Perhaps you were married and now you're a widow or a widower. God meets you right there. Perhaps you've been married once and you're still married to that guy, even though he's ugly. God meets you there. If you have been divorced and remarried, God meets you there. If you've been divorced and not, meet, not been remarried, God meets you there. Are you getting the idea God meets us right where we are? How can that be? Because He is God and He is Savior. And don't let anyone tell you that you gotta wear a scarlet letter on you. That is not what scripture says. Yes, there are consequences, but that is not what scripture says. And He is the God who offers forgiveness. Now, he doesn't just wave a wand over it. We have work to do. We have to start with what? Confession. We have to do all those things. But that's God. And I want to close in this way with a too long passage of Scripture. I don't usually do this. But it is vital that you continue to listen to me. Because I know, again, your pastor's not dumb. I know there's some people that are upset that I'm talking about this. And they're looking at the Scripture and they're going, oh Uh-oh. Is he saying what I think he is? And I know there's some people that are judging right now. They're they're going, wow, never been divorced. Okay, we we run this spectrum, so I want you to listen very closely to me. God's goal is healthy marriages. If you are married, in fact, right now, I want you to raise your hand if you are married right right now. Not widowed, but right now. Would you look around? Who's married right now? Okay, put your hands down. I have something to say to you. If you're married, work at it. Work at it. I don't care what the history is, the baggage is. Listen, a pastor has to work at his marriage. Do you know that? Lynn could get frustrated with me, and you know what? She is right to get frustrated with me. And she has to come back and remind, and I thank the Lord for her. I would be a mess if I didn't have my wife. And she, I gotta work at some things. I'm not gonna tell you what they are, none of your business. (laughs) But I gotta work at them. And then she'll say sometimes, is it worth the fight? And I know what that means. I'm just like, I go sit down in the chair and sulk, because what does that mean? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, it's worth the fight. Marriage takes work. Listen, from our childhood, putting us two together, it is a miracle of God that we're married today. I don't advise this. We got married in college. I had barely turned 20. Can you imagine what the first few years were like? Oh, my goodness. If we would just <laughs> waited a few more years. But I didn't, know, <laughs> I didn't know that thing in Scripture, remember, where Paul says, <laughs> you better go ahead and get married, buddy. Some of y'all will get that later. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea, and hopefully the kids, it went over their head. All right, yeah. So it it was tough, it was tough, it was tough. But wherever you are, if you put your hand up, work at it. And you may have been married for 50 or 60 years. Listen, don't think you can coast. You need to keep working at it because the enemy can come right in and do some business in your life. Don't think you have arrived. If you're divorced or remarried, I want you to know something. I want you to see today how Jesus treats you. Not me or someone else. I want you to see how Jesus treats you. In fact, it might be quite different than some people treat you. Have you met some people that treated you a certain way? Because you were divorced? Because you were remarried? Let's look at how Jesus treats us. Not that guy out there or that gal over there. Here's how he does. If you'd like to turn to John chapter 4, we're going to be John 4 and John 8, and then we'll be done. And your pastor will be so happy when I'm done. John 4 and John 8. You'll remember the story. Jesus encounters the woman at the well. So let's look at it. Reading John 4, verse 7 through 18, long passage. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, and she goes on. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Do you remember that? The the Pharisees and all those guys, what? They thought they were like half-breeds. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, they were looking down their nose, right? And she, she acknowledged that. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, And who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. What is Jesus doing there? He's sharing the good news with her, isn't he? He's sharing salvation with her. Sir, the woman said to him, look what happens. Give me this water. She's receiving the gospel. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. Go call your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. And Jesus said, you have correctly said I don't have a husband. And look what Jesus says. For you've had five husbands. And the man you have, you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is true let me give you a principle that i think everything that jesus says and does everything here's the overarching principle and you will find it in scripture in the gospels jesus said he came to do what to seek and save the lost We in church forget that sometimes. We get insulated, right? We get insulated within the walls. We don't get out sometimes. Or we start trying to take sins and we'll rank them. Or just this view. Or this news article I don't like. Or this ethnicity. Or this religion. On and on and on. Listen, the overarching principle that Jesus gives us is I came, not for you buckaroos, I came to seek and save the lost. Do you remember that? And does he do it? Yes, what do the religious leaders do over and over again? They say, why are you hanging out with those people? Why are you having dinner with the tax collectors? Why are you associating yourself with the prostitutes? He came to seek and save the lost. And we see this right here, this Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. So let's always remember that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He knows what our sins are. Do you see that principle? He goes ahead and tells her, I could just, I wish I was there. I could just see her like. He tells it all and said, You know, you've spoken correctly. And, and I'm reminded of something. Quit being burdened by what happened in your life before you became a Christian. I mean, if we need to deal with certain scars or things to, to get you healthy and whole and move you on down the road of. Being a, a more and more a, like Christ disciple, yes, we'll do that. But when we're saved, all the new things what come, and the old stuff passes away. Okay, so remember that. Jesus knows what our sins are, and He desires. Even in this situation, He desires for people to be saved. He's talking to her about this living water. He's talking to her about eternal life but something else about jesus jesus then if people are saved he desires saved people to take up their cross daily and follow him have you read that in scripture there's nothing that you have done there's no condition of your life whatever your marital status is or not that should keep you from following him daily hello and I have met so many people that because of something they've done, maybe in their far past, or maybe currently, or whatever it is, not just divorce, other things as well, that they are, they're bound and they're not able to take up their cross and follow daily Jesus. And I want to entreat you, get close to Jesus, let him forgive you, let him work in you. Whatever your circumstances. Let's go to the second passage in John and we'll be done. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. John 8, 2 through 11. At dawn, Jesus went to the temple complex again and all the people were coming to him. Get the picture. And he sat down and he began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, aren't you tired of these guys? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and made her stand in the center. Now, you've got to get the picture. Temple complex, all the people are coming around Jesus. He's teaching, and they bring her and put her in the center of it. Can you picture it? It's like a movie or something. I don't know. And they brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, condescendingly, I think, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, that is true. That's, that's why sexual immorality is a good translation because in their law, adultery meant you kill them. But let's go on. That's what they said. And they go, well, so what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down, and man, if you know what he wrote, you're going to write a bestseller book, because we don't know exactly what he wrote. There's a lot of theories, is not? Have you read some of them? And Jesus stoops down, and he starts writing in the sand on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted, they kept going, in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And then Jesus stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. And all of a sudden they weren't so persistent. When they heard this, he's writing, they left one by one, starting with the older men and only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you today? Excuse me. Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Did you notice the title she called him? She knows she is in the presence of something supernatural. "No, No one, Lord, she answered. And this is what Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. And I want you to think about this as I close. Church, it is not our responsibility to be compulsive finger pointers. Listen, I'm your pastor. I'm an under shepherd. I desire to equip you, to help you, to come alongside you, to cry with you, to pray with you, to play with you, whatever it might be, so that you and me both, iron sharpens iron, we will be more and more like Christ, and we will move down this journey together, right? That's why I love Sunday school classes so much. You get in there and you do life together. It's, I'm not gonna walk down a hallway and go, oh, that person, oh, that person, oh, oh, that one's okay, no because I'm not okay. Whoever wrote that book was crazy. I'm okay, you're okay, that's stupid. That's not what the Bible says. (laughs) It should say you're not okay and I'm not okay and we need to do something about it. God help us, that's what we need to do, you say. So it's not our, our responsibility to be compulsive finger pointers. Why? We are all sinners saved by grace. We are on a disciple's journey together. But let me also say this from this passage as your pastor. The key for me here is to go and sin no more. Of course, we're not going to be able to be perfect. That won't happen until what? Face to face with Christ, eternity. There's the answer. You come to me, ultimately, when we talk about stuff, or we counseling? That's what's going to come up. We must get to the point where God works in our life where we go and sin no more. And I leave you with that today as we think about this lady and what a situation that was. Wherever you are in life with this subject, you are a sinner saved by grace if you're truly saved, just like me. And you're on a disciple's journey, whether you want to admit it or not, just like me. And we're supposed to take a step forward and a step forward. And he walks with me, and he talks with me. Remember that old hymn? We're to be doing that and allow God to work in and through us so that we would sin no more. We would do it less and less. Let's pray. God, I pray you'd clear minds and hearts right now. Even histories. And then we would contemplate what your word says, we would contemplate what you want to do in our lives, and we would see that you are Savior and Lord. And God, whatever scars that I have in my life and others have in their life, that we would use them, that you would redeem them, and we would be able to be a shining light for others who might be going through difficult times. God, help us to be ministers. Help us to have ministry with others. God, help us to repent if we need to do that. Help us to to work. Help us to serve. Thank you that your standard is always Scripture and not even the smartest guy in the room's opinion. So God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.